and welcome to the last HSJ Health Check podcast of the year. I'm your host, Annabelle Collins, and I'm joined by Nick Harding, Dave West, and a special festive guest some listeners might be familiar with, Rebecca Thomas, health correspondent at The Independent. Welcome back, Rebecca, and thanks for joining Dave and Nick. So in keeping with our uh, tradition now at HSJ, we're going to briefly revisit a few of our predictions from the Christmas edition of the podcast last year and talk a bit about what we think's in store for the NHS in 2022. And um, so, Nick, you're feeling quite, quite uh, smug about your prediction in the podcast last year as it's paid off. Um, what, 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 what were you um, predicting? Yeah, I mean... I, I have actually been looking forward to this podcast ever since March uh, <laughs> because my prediction uh, turned out to come true a bit earlier than I expected. Um, but I predicted that um, there would be a further shakeup of the the NHS tech landscape. So when we went when we went into 2021, you had NHS X, you had NHS Digital, and you had NHS England, all doing different things uh, in the world of sort of NHS tech policy. Mm-hmm. Um, and my prediction was that uh, that would was too crowded a field, and there would be some kind of change. Uh, I think I was maybe a little bit vague on what, but I did predict some change coming and it was true in March we uh, broke the story that NHS X was going to be merged into NHS England Um, and then in November so only a month ago it also emerged NHS Digital would be merged into NHS England so it's actually been quite a uh, a big year for sort mm. of uh, the NHS tech leadership community a lot of change more change in fact than I, than I predicted I probably thought Maybe NHSX would be merged into either NHSD or NHSC, but we've now got both NHSD and NHSX being merged into NHSC. So um, I'm claiming a victory for my prediction, but perhaps didn't quite predict as enormous a transformation as what we're about to see in 2022. So that that's certainly going to be the main kind of, I think, mm. Uh, happening in the, the tech field. Uh, next Can I put, year. put you on the spot, Nick? The, they, at the minute, the chief execs of NHSX and NHS Digital, Matthew Gold and Simon Bolton, are still sort of appear to be kind of there and as if they're just going to move into part of the NHS England structure, which would be quite unusual for, uh, which would be unusual all around and not taking out much of the cost at the top and things like that. Is that are they going to continue to just work there under Tim Ferriss or under Amanda Pritchard or whatever? So Simon Bolton has been given a seat at the NHSE board. Uh, so he's going to become the NHS's sort of chief information officer, but also, as I say, I, I think sit on the, the board in some capacity. Um, and I think he will stay. His position is interim. And so apparently will be advertised and there will be opportunities for others to go for his job. Um, but it's quite hard to see anyone else getting it, given that he'll already have had best part of a year's experience in that position. So I think he will stay. Um, Matthew Gould, I don't actually know. I mean, he uh, has been at NHSX, will have been sort of at NHS for three years next year. And some people have sort of suggested that he might want to Sort of, sort of leave the NHS again um, because he's kind of done his time in the NHS and I'm not sure he's got any sort of 
huge aspirations long term in the yeah, NHS. He'd come in from uh, another government job or something, hadn't he, as a general civil servant sort of That's civil right, from DCMS, I think it was. Um, so, and yeah, he's sort of, I think he'll certainly stay until the transition is completed. But after that, um, well, if, if I was going to put money on one of Matthew Gold or Simon Bolton not being in their positions next year, I think it would be Matthew Gold. Thank you an angry letter from Matthew Gold. <laughs> <laughs> Nick, I wanted to ask you um, another putting you on the spot question. But Matt Hancock obviously um, ended his term as health secretary this summer. And tech was one of his priorities. I was wondering whether you've noticed it. Do you or do you think it might kind of um, it might change in how it's prioritised by the DH with a different health secretary in place? I think there was certainly a risk of that happening. Um, but the impression I have is that um, sort of the departure of Matt Hancock has sort of been more than compensated by the the pandemic in terms of the pandemic making everyone realise how important tech is um, mm. to the future of the NHS and, and uh, you know, recovering the, the elective backlog. So I think, um, you know, if, if the pandemic hadn't happened, then, yeah, I think there would be a, a genuine concern that um, that tech might again become sort of siloed and, and not very um, uh, prominent uh, at kind of the, the NHS. Mm. Uh, if the pandemic hadn't have happened, there would have been no public interest in leaking in publishing those uh, those images of Matt Hancock. <laughs> yeah, and he, so would, he, would, he would still be there. He wouldn't have broken any rules either, to be fair. He wouldn't have broken any social listening exactly rules. Exactly, no public interest. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's not. That did they? That in spectacular fashion. <laughs> yeah. But do you no. think, do you think, Nick, um, I mean, with all the GP kind of bashing over the past few months and the kind of, um, well, politically uh, tainted the idea of digital appointments, but we know that obviously we know they are still vital as part of managing um managing the demand both in primary care and secondary care although secondary care hasn't had a bashing for it uh do you i mean do you see um do you think government's gonna uh, slow down its um plans to kind of digitalize appointments do you think there's going to be do you think that's going to lose steam or already has lost steam mm, i don't think I don't think the sort of intentions will lose steam, but it's possible that it, it might lose steam at local level because um, obviously some GPs have reverted a little bit more than others to going back to face to face. But I think there has been such a huge shift in mentality and just in the way things have been done that I think there will still be a lot of uh, impetus put on on everyone to keep using like digital appointments and there probably will be an increased push out of thought in secondary care to to get to that um i think is it was it one third of appointment outpatient appointments must be digital or a quarter i can't remember which one but i think there'll be an increased push on that next year um so i don't think there is going to be much let up to be honest there will obviously be pockets of of places that go back to something more like pre-pandemic but i, th I think there's been quite, quite a big change so um I don't think that's going to happen. There won't be like a, a going back to the way things were before. And Nick, what else is on your radar then for yes, 2022? So, so I have got one prediction uh, for 2022, um, which I will uh, nail my colours to. Um, I've been following the, the new hospitals programme very closely. So this is mm -hmm. the government's ambition to build 40 new hospitals by 2030. Uh, I think 2021 was sort of the 
um, the rebirth of that program because it was initially launched in 2019 then 2020 was somewhat interrupted by the pandemic and so in 2021 it's now been kind of um, reborn with a new leadership team and um, they're kind of they've been busy building up their strategies for for what what should be done that has had an impact on some of the projects so they've been quite delayed but I'm going to predict that by 2020 by the end of 2022 there will be spades in the ground construction having started at at least four or five of these new hospitals and I, I, mean, I use the word hospitals as Dave has revealed previously um, the word hospital for the Department of Health can also mean a new unit or a new wing uh, of, a, of a hospital so I suppose that's actually what I'm saying I'm saying they could be straight on the ground for a new unit or a you're new doing, wing. Uh, you're doing um, the inverted commas while we as we speak I you? am doing the inverted commas yeah and the new hospitals yeah um but but i think that will be a bit of a kind of symbolic moment for for government because they'll finally be able to say you know we've now got the the builders on site um and we're getting started with this program because at the moment there's very much a sense of frustration from a lot of the trust involved saying that we've been promised all this money we've been promised we're going to be able to start building soon but it's not happened yet so um i think the the government kind of needs to demonstrate some actual physical progress um next year uh, otherwise i think there will be quite a lot of, of kickback from the trust involved so um, i'm going to say that there will be some building actually starting on some of the new projects not the big hospital projects but the sort of the smaller ones where it's like an expansion of the emergency department or a new maternity wing that kind of that kind of project you see so seeing boris pictures in a hard hat next year <laughs> oh, undoubtedly if, if he's still prime minister uh by then oh. uh, yeah <laughs> that's, a, that's a different prediction altogether i'm not going to into that yeah. Yeah. if the general election is in 2020 that's when it's yeah say it's either yeah. 23 or 24 but probably 24 is um how many will be finished in time uh i my guess is probably around eight eight or nine of the new so including the pre the ones that the previous government no oh, okay. no so i was going to take those out of it but if you include them them then maybe about 10 or 11 11 yeah max 12 i think but but i stress the ones that will be finished before the next election will be those smaller ones the units the wings the expanded not ones. real hospitals yeah how not, many to, so in a few in a future episode how many actual hospitals will be finished yes. by the next election? <laughs> do you think they'll uh, start to include the nightingale tents in that <laughs> offer well who knows the way they've been counting <laughs> hospitals at the moment who knows but hopefully not <laughs> Hopefully not, but who knows? I think that's a solid prediction, Nick. Thanks very much. Um, and I think now moving to you, Rebecca. Um, obviously, last time um, you joined us for this, you were focusing on mental health. So I'm just going to ask you briefly about that. You um, actually, I think it was in 2019, you, um, almost at 2020, correct me if I'm wrong, you staked your job on uh, the government not eliminating out of area placements by the end of 2021. Um, and it seems that you were you were in fact right about that they haven't eliminated them um yeah yes i mean yes i was right in it and then it still left it was it was <laughs> <laughs> um no i mean they were never gonna eliminate them um yeah to various placements and i i would say probably the focus has uh waned on that and to my knowledge i haven't really set a new hard deadline for trust to eliminate them mm. um i mean partly with the understanding that COVID 
COVID pressures um, probably going to make it even more impossible. Over, over the next two months, we're likely going to see more mental health wards having to close to admissions because of infection outbreaks, similar to, similar to the concerns in acute care, what a third of staff off, off sick. Um, those are the predictions, but and mental health isn't, as I understand it, isn't exempt from those those pressures, of course. So again, there will be no there will be no eliminating them by um, 2022 either. Rebecca, I won't take you, my job on it this time. Do, how close? Do you know how close they came, Rebecca? Like, uh, you know, was it sort of a narrow miss, or was it absolutely nowhere near? No, it was absolutely nowhere near. Don't ask me figures off my head, but it was nowhere near. Mm. ever since they're just there are those areas that are severely um underbedded underbedded i don't know if that's a word but have a severe bed deficit and also mm. more importantly don't have a don't have the adequate kind of surrounding services in place to properly reduce that um which i've just never been quite able to tackle their out of area placements in those areas mm. Mm. And Rebecca, you also talked a bit about the, the vaccination programme last year and the fact that um, vulnerable people, particularly people with learning disabilities, are not being prioritised for their jabs. Um, when we were speaking last year, obviously the vaccine programme had literally just started um, prioritising the older age groups. Um, did you, I mean, we obviously saw the prioritisations change a bit, but did you see that, that group of people um, kind of, you know, get their finally get their jabs um earlier than their age would suggest yes so um around february time um Mm. jvci um invited all people on registers with learning disabilities because previously um only if you were had a register with a severe or profound learning disability where you Mm. part typically vulnerable group and um Mm. to get your jabs so they were called and i mean there's been relatively successful in terms of catching up this group of people for their first and second jabs but um uh, i did a story yesterday um revealing um that they um this group of people are now struggling to get their boosters so there is data i mean open um a group of data scientists in oxford they regularly monitor the vaccination uptakes for different groups it's, it only covers about 40 percent of practices but it provides a good judge it provides a good indication and so around a third of those with learning disabilities um, were found to be overdue their um, booster jab um, um, as of last as of last week. So again, we're seeing and uh, we're seeing a repeated repeated issue of this group vulnerable group of people being overlooked. And it's quite it's a bit different this time because they are technically part of the prior, prioritization group. But the fear is when the booster jabs were opened up to um, the whole world um, that the priority list has effectively gone out the window and uh, the NHS or those running the vaccination services have been slow to kind of uh, slow to um, how do I phrase this um, slow to kind of readjust their uh, kind of how they how they can support this group of people to access services so for example it's not really appropriate for it might not be appropriate for some people with learning disabilities to wait hours and queues at walk-in centres um we all know the online system has been backed up since it's since it opened to um opened up to um all adults um and so there does really need to be um a concert concerted 
effort to think about how to how to proactively give this population the booster jab because I mean as we reported for the last year they were eight times more likely to um, die from COVID than the general population so although the situations although the situations changed slightly from last year there is still a clearer I think I think there is just an oversight of this people with learning disabilities which is really sad um, but that it's been what, a decades-long problem. Absolutely. And of course, um, at the moment, your view is wider than um, just you know, covering the mental health sector. I just wonder what are your thoughts on 2022? Like, what do you think the pressure points would be? Any kind of big things that you're expecting? Um... Well, yeah, so I can't really, this is not really a prediction, but as we know, staff sickness rates is, is probably the biggest concern um, for mm. leaders, not just COVID, but broader, more broadly. I think the mandatory vaccine um, law for staff coming in, or the first deadline is February, is going to be a, a, it's going to be a bigger issue than we think. Mm. Obviously, the world is obviously services are all kind of distracted by COVID by now, but that deadline is coming fast. And although there isn't a large number of, although it's a small proportion of staff in the scheme of things, it could it could hit certain services quite badly if you have a group of if you have a cluster of staff for example within one service who are um refusing to get their vaccine i mean these 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 are people that are part of the general population just because they're healthcare workers they're not doesn't mean their thinking is any different and i mean speaking to um a few people i think there just will be a uh, this is stubborn isn't the quite word isn't the word i want to use but there will just be a cohort people um mm. that won't won't get their vaccine despite all of the engagement. I mean, I know mm. you know more about what trusts are specifically doing, but I think mm. this is be a bigger problem than we anticipate. Mm. I think I think that's right. I think trusts are trying really hard now. They're thinking, um, okay, we need to have one on one talks with people and kind of take a really like gentle, encouraging approach. Because um, I think that they're right, that is the best way to get people on side. No one responds well to being told they must do something. Um, no, whatever it is. So um, I think I think people are, um, you know, HR directors and people, um, directors of kind of people and culture within trust sort of trying to think, okay, what can we do now while we've still got some time before February um, to get people on side? But yeah, I think you're right. You won't ever get everybody. Um, and a, a few people in each of the, you know, 200 odd trusts is enough to make a difference to the service altogether, um, especially as some of them I'm sure can't be redeployed, I hate that word, but can't be redeployed to, um, you know, a non-clinical setting of their, I don't know, a healthcare assistant or a nurse or whoever, you know. Even at the moment, during the COVID surge, you're talking about redeploying non-clinical people into clinical settings, into frontline settings, mm. isn't it? So you can't really yeah. go, oh, well, let's just transfer you all out. Um, yeah. So the, I think they might, it, it, particularly given, isn't it, I forget, it's like this February the 7th or something, the cutoff yeah. when you'd have to have oh, yeah. your first vaccine. So if we are still under substantial Omicron pressure, um, then I just think they'll have to push it back or abandon it, wouldn't they? They can't go around just sending away thousands of staff at a time like that. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Correct me if I'm wrong, the guidance, well, the kind of uh, what, what's going to come in in terms of legislation is still pretty, it's still vague in terms of what kind of patient-facing staff actually means. Right, so as I, was, I mean, the conversations I've had so far, individual trusts are looking at like what it means for what it means for them. Right, I mean, most mm. managers in the NHS 
trust will at some point be on a ward. So what's a grey area? Yeah, you mean, he, you know, um, is a ward manager uh, or something uh, yeah. counted? Mm. And is it, fair? is it really fair to um, apply this only to front facing stuff, uh, to kind of front frontline patient facing staff if we're going to do it? Shouldn't we do it to all? Shouldn't shouldn't it be mandatory? For yeah, it's like an ethical debate that I guess the health service hasn't really had because of, there's the flu campaign, but obviously it's not mandatory. And trusts do get very high percentage of their staff vaccinated, but it's just not the same. It hasn't got the same like politics behind it um, and urgency, I guess, as well. Um, but yeah, no, Rebecca, I think I think you're absolutely right. I think that's going to um, that will, as Dave says as well, potentially be delayed if they need to and um, continue to rattle on. Um, certainly in the first half of next year and potentially beyond. Um, Could make a sorry. No, you go. No, I wanted to add to my kind of is this be a short term prediction? Um, I think um, both government and NHS has really um, um, really um, created a problem for itself in terms of pregnant women and vaccinations. Mm. I'm still, I mean, despite there been well, in the last couple of weeks, have been kind of massive campaigns to improve that, but it's also been a year of confusion for pregnant women and in, mm. similar, in a similar vein to kind of people learning disabilities I'm not sure we're seeing wide scale kind of thinking about how to how pregnant women can access their boosters for example so I think they've made a big I think there's a made a rod not the NHS specifically but um, <laughs> the government have made a rod for its own back and it is a really serious issue um, in mm. terms of pregnant women and um, being in an ICU with COVID at the moment. Yeah I think the communication is just terrible and it's hard to like repair that I think because um, people are obviously really anxious and yeah no I think that's absolutely right. Um, and then Dave I'm going to come to you now. Um, <laughs> what, were you. Your th <laughs> what were your thoughts uh, last year and most importantly looking at looking ahead to next year? Last year I said I mean I think I did sort of start off by saying that we would that I would sort of optimistically work on the assumption that that Covid would be uh, not gone away but would be not such a big concern for the NHS by the summer which obviously was um, very um, now very sadly and um, mm. frustratingly not the case because obviously we're all still here um, worrying about that and many many people out there grappling grappling with it again this winter um, and I had said that in the context of, of COVID hopefully receding into the background, the government would sort of reset its priorities for the NHS and that, you know, it hasn't really been able to do that because um, in, a, in a sort of comprehensive way, because, for example, they were just about to publish the elective recovery plan when Omicron became a big issue and it, they couldn't do that in which they were, you know, trying to set new targets, albeit there has been, um, you know, the, they have set what what they can in the way of funding and targets for elective recovery um, in the gaps between uh, COVID dominating and and Sajid Javid, who obviously we didn't predict would be coming in as the new health secretary, um, health and social care secretary, has has um, you know tried to use his political capital to move a little bit away from being dominated by COVID, but largely failed really. Um, However, I did say that 
elective recovery and all things elective recovery would be a big deal and they certainly were you know again in the gaps between covid stuff there's been lots and lots of talk about that and much much energy gone in, into the nhs and indeed the nhs is sort of putting extra pressure on itself now by um trying to protect elective beds and elective capacity despite the the big winter um winter and covid pressures so it's um you know it's really trying to pull out all the stops to keep elective planned care going even though it's that still going to be a really really slow game to actually make any dents in um, in, in what's happening with weights and waiting lists I did say that Simon Stevens would probably leave, um, although that wasn't sort of announced at the time. He hadn't handed in his notice, um, although it was, you know, been predicted around around the place uh, elsewhere for for some time. And of course, he did leave in um, perhaps slightly quicker than than some people were expecting actually at the time. And left in July. And I did also at the time there was already sort of rumours swirling around about Dido Harding potentially taking over as um, as NHS. England chief executive and I did say that I thought that was very unlikely she did she did actually formally apply which I probably wouldn't have predicted I thought it probably wouldn't get that far but you know clearly it came came close to being a possibility and maybe the change of health secretary had a little uh, role in 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 uh, shifting her chances but um uh but she um uh, but she she didn't ultimately become chief executive. Obviously, Amanda Pritchard took over, um, which I didn't I didn't boldly predict who actually would become the chief executive. But I did correctly predict that Dido Harding would not. Um, the other thing, uh, I think that was that was all my predictions. That I remember anyway. And I'll so for for the forthcoming year, oh. and let me try and be more specific than than last time round, perhaps. I'll, I, I think that in terms of electives, clearly elective recovery is going to dominate again once we get past this wave of COVID. Let's not say that it's, uh, let's not assume that it's, um, the pandemic is going to sort of peter away in terms of its relevance. I mean, it is, it is important, I suppose, to say that actually, judging by experience, it seems like it's going to just keep rumbling on as a sort of background concern that the NHS will have to learn to live with, as it sort of did all through through autumn, really, before Omicron came out, came along. It was still sort of, uh, you know, what was it, 7,000 occupied beds, something like that, you know, a not insignificant mm-hmm. thing to just keep working around, and particularly with all the infection control um, measures that it, that come with it so that will sort of keep rumbling on but elective recovery again will come be be prominent and i i think that this kind of list cleansing stuff of like um you know there's been various talk uh, in the background about the fact that the belief that um, many people on the waiting list don't actually want or need um their the thing they're on the waiting list for anymore i think there was a figure i don't know nick cannot if you remember the figure someone said something like one in five um, which strikes me people on the waiting list, the waiting list being about six million. So, you know, uh, more than a million of those potentially not actually needing to be there. That strikes me as kind of wildly optimistic, but um, but some people certainly believe it. And there's a lot of work going on around, um, you know, patient initiated follow up. So taking people off whatever list they're on and saying, well, you you mm. call us if you if you need something um, and about um, kind of uh, 
uh, uh, all that kind of engaging with the, the patient or the individual about whether they actually want the care anymore and uh, alongside a whole bunch of data stuff of interrogating the data and saying well is this really an accurate waiting list I mean our experience you know over the years at HSJ is lots of stories coming up where people interrogate the data and realize there was actually several thousand people waiting who they didn't have on the waiting list so I sort of sense that again a bit of an optimism bias that this is the work is actually going to result in the waiting list falling by a fifth but clear from the government's point of view and the NHS leadership point of view there's a huge imperative to get those numbers down over the next um, couple of years before the next general election and the um, you know the sheer attraction of being able to it's so 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 going to be so 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 hard probably impossible to get them down as as Jim Mackey has been um, mm. you know wisely honest that actually it's probably not going to fall by time for the next general election uh, I think or possibly said over the next couple of years something like that but it, so it's going to be a very strong attraction to sort of do these artificial um, you know data number based things to to bring the number down I don't know Nick whether you sort of have any data uh, insight from the techie data point of view on that only challenge. that NHS England are very working very hard on that and uh, that work's being led I think by Ming Tang who's one of the sort of Covid tech heroes if you like um, she's now got a team set up to, to look at this and I think they're actually piloting certain technologies like certain trust with a waiting list to try and cleanse it in that way that you, you just set out Dave but mm. yeah there's probably more on that to come I think. Mm. And then what other one have I got? Um, so integrated care systems, we've just revealed yes. that the go live of integrated care systems will be delayed by three months from April to July. I'll mm. predict that it'll be delayed again for another three months till October, um, just because mm. of everything that's going on. Might not be. They'll obviously be yeah, quite keen to stick to that date after now they've actually secured it, but um, confirmed it. But you know there's so much going on and so much complexity that uh, that won't David are there any major like implications if that was to happen if it was a six month delay in the end or what I mean does it really matter to anyone or just... um, <laughs> I mean it matters to the people who just want to get it over the line doesn't it and I think if you end up delaying for an entire year or something like that then it frustrates people because um, you can lose momentum and, and you know the people who lined up to do certain jobs are sort of thinking is this ever going to happen and so on but I think three or six months is not um in the context of all the stuff that's having to go on around Omicron and vaccination and everything, three to six months is not really um, a great a great deal. But it does have a little bit of significance, possibly in light of my other prediction, which is that there'll be a sort of ongoing, um, the main kind of sort of row and tension in all this will be between um, place and system. And we saw this uh, blow up over the last few weeks in the discussion about the government the, the integration white paper that the government had planned which was due to and the prime minister is very keen to um, have a sort of single individual in charge of health and social care in each place uh, place being like a borough or a district or whatever things that are much smaller than a, in most cases than an integrated care system and and that that row i think was really a sort of um uh, tension which in NHS England but it was pretty against this move because it sort of shifts the moving the deck chairs for integrated care systems before the integrated before they've actually been set up um, and potentially has some sort of causes financial problems for the NHS but I think really it was a bit of a sort of um, a kind of proxy for the row that's the tension that's running between what has been promised to 
places as in you will have some power and be in charge versus the reality that are actually creating 42 statutory integrated care systems integrated care boards which are not places and they will you know much as they often nearly all of them say they really want to be led by their local places and most of them you know they will actually have an agenda and you know, what, what's the point of creating a 42 integrated care systems if you're basically going to dissemble them straight away and devolve everything back down to 150 odd you know uh, places which will look very much like clinical commissioning groups um, with a bit of bit of extra local government input but um, you know there's a lot of there's good arguments on both sides of that but I think that will that will continue rumbling around that integration agenda that's mine mm. Hello, Annabelle and I will I last last year I said that staff well-being was going to continue being uh focused for the health service which was um you know a pretty accurate prediction I think it you know it's it's um I think now more than ever um we've already talked about staff um uh staffing problems um particularly staff sickness at the moment is a huge deal for the NHS and I think yeah um eyes are all on retention how to how to keep people working in the system um and I think unfortunately that some of the simple things that were being done um like hot drinks hot food car parking etc sort of has disappeared signs have gone back up reminding people they need to pay for the coffee machine that sort of thing um which is pretty jarring I think I think, yeah, sadly, lots of those things were fleeting. But obviously, staying in the NHS is way more than just those little perks. I think um, there's quite a lot of bad feeling at the moment with um, some of the conversations around pay. Um, people feeling that they're really they were owed more by the government um, after working through nearly two years of a pandemic. Little rumblings of um, discontent among um, RCM members, for example. Kind of around strike action but I sort of spoke to someone who said that actually not that many people they did like a like a ballot I can't remember the name it's like a, a sort of um uh like indicative a pre ballot. yeah that's the word indicative ballot, a pre-ballot ballot is what I was going to say um and actually like not that many people voted so maybe the appetite isn't really there but I think people just yeah generally feel quite um frustrated and um but what I do think um as a firm prediction for 2022 is as Nick you were talking about the changes made for NHS NHS X and digital folding into NHS HEE Health Education England has also been folded in which has sort of been was sort of something we were talking about way more in like sort of mid mm, sort of late late 2018 early 2019 and then it's sort of they brought in Navina Evans as a new chief exec and um, David Bean as chair and everyone I speak to has really sings their praises as leaders and it's got a really strong board so it really seemed like it was you know it was set to do its thing for a while but now there's like a real question mark about what will happen who will lead it who will stay who will go um how will their expertise be retained um also um yeah what what's going to happen for the um settlement for education and training which was not part of the recent spending review um and it's understood that um that the, the negotiations are still ongoing and this kind of merger folding in thing was part of the negotiations 
um, a sort of a trade off. Like, yeah, the bottom yeah. line. Well, yeah, kind of a, a it's not supposed to trading as a trade off as a calling their bluff that they're saying what well, you need yeah. to give us more money and they say well we're not going to give you more money you can pay for it and you you can have a health education England as well. Um, you know, so the, it seems like they've for now they just said no to to more money, which is pretty pretty alarming for the prospects for education and training. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, which is of course um. You know, in 2019, I was talking about CPD and how that would be a big issue and how that's one of the most important ways to retain staff. And that's true, like, you know, job satisfaction and progress and all that sort of thing. That's what what's keep, what keeps people in their jobs and happy and motivated. And yeah, there isn't, we still don't know how much money is going to be put towards that. Um, so yeah, I think the ongoing tussle um, to try and get a figure out of the Treasury um, and whether actually... The amendment, the health and care bill that's been um, sort of Hunt's amendment, I think, sort of referred to now, has been was debated in the Lords last week, and um, Baroness Harding and Sir Simon Stevens were very pro that. Um, whether they'll, you know, their influence might see that. They're going to have to give something, aren't they? I think, yeah, yeah totally. they're, they're going to. The government's going to have to give something, but quite whether it will actually do the job but for the whole point is to force the hand of the treasury isn't it so the yeah. government's got to think of something that won't force the hand of the treasury but will appear to be some kind of concession so yeah and i and i would be surprised if they're upfront about the workforce gaps they've asked they asked in the summer for the health service to do like a as as far as i understand it the first real review of rotor gaps um, and um, interestingly, I wrote about this in my column this week, but Baroness Harding spoke about the work she did three years ago that was never published um, because, again, because the Treasury, um, she, she suggested that they, they, there was not the political will to publish this stuff because obviously it doesn't look good. <laughs> um, but yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if that kind of trend continued. Um, I think that, yeah, the government is in a very, not very precarious, that would be nuts nice too dramatic but I think it wouldn't be a politically wise thing perhaps to be really open about how in th- how big the workforce deficit is um in the health service and that's my that's my two pence um <laughs> I think on that note um yeah we've reached the end of our time this week um for our um Christmas episode thanks Rebecca Thomas um now um health correspondent at the independent thanks very much for joining us and of course Nick and Dave and just a reminder to listeners, our podcast is available every week on the HSJ website and across all main podcast channels. And please do subscribe and give us a rating if you haven't already. Thanks for listening. Have a very Merry Christmas from everyone at HSJ and we'll see you in the new year.